Hello and welcome to episode fifty-one of another game podcast. Uh, Pip can't make it this week because she's been um, she's been travelling a lot. She's been to like Germany and then America and then Germany again, uh, so she's quite tired. <laughs> um, so it's uh, just me and um, Laura Kate Dale, our frequent guest. Hooray! I'm back again. I'm very difficult <laughs> to get rid of. I'm taking over all of the podcasts. You really are. Um, but I'm also joined by Lucy Morris. Hey. <laughs> Uh, writer for Indie Static as well as a uh, game designer, and uh, Hannah Bunce, who uh, oh. hello, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, who works for Tutorials by Design. I was gonna usually I uh, well I haven't for a while, but I've been encouraged to ask people a, a silly question at the start to uh, start things off again. And considering um, what Hannah does, I thought it might be interesting to ask people what their favourite tutorials and games were. Is it far too easy and too much of a low-hanging fruit to go for Portal and Portal 2? <laughs> because like that is the, the answer that everyone seems to go to, and I think that's with good reason. It's sort of, it is very good at making the entire game a very gradual tutorial, but that never being annoying or irritating. I mean, it helps with the quite short games, I think. Like when you get something the length of Assassin's Creed that is a constant yeah. tutorial, where it kind of drags after a while. Well, that's the thing is that this. Um, rather than being a series of new mechanics being taught to you through a tutorial, it's a series of ways of using those same mechanics you already have, mm. which is just quite a nice way to handle a long-running tutorial. Mm. Matt, I was talking to someone today in work actually about, about it, and Portal 2 came up in conversation, and they said how they got to halfway through Portal 2 and just completely forgot that they could shoot portals. <laughs> so they're thinking, like, okay, so I've got to bounce. How do I bounce? Oh yeah, I've got a portal gun. Yeah, there's this bit where it concentrates really heavily on like the, the goose that you can pour on the ground, and after a while you're like, oh no, wait, also I can go through the portals. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, Lucy, what's your favourite? Um, yeah, I have to like agree that portal is is the easy go-to answer for that because obviously it's fantastic. But I really liked um. The PlayStation 3 Katamari Damacy's tutorial, because I'm, I'm a huge Katamari Damacy fan, and uh, the, the tutorial was really fun and unobtrusive, and uh, you get to learn all the mechanics without like having it spoon-fed, so you just like mess around and it tells you what you're actually doing. And I thought it was a cool way of doing it, so, yeah. Um, i trying to think. I think personally one of my favourites is... Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Chronicles of Riddick game. I really like it kind of it's kind of a microcosm of everything you're going to be doing like you are it start the game starts with Riddick arriving in prison and then then uh, like as soon as you get in you like kill the guy who brought you in stab a load of people shoot a load of people and then break out um, in the space of about 10 minutes um, and then obviously you haven't that isn't what's actually happened because Riddick then reveals then cuts back and reveals that Riddick's just been daydreaming about murdering everyone because he's that kind of psychopath um, but every, but it's the things you do, you know, like um, killing a couple of people sneakily, grabbing a gun, and then finally getting hold of a gun, and then um, sh- uh, and then escalating things from there, is actually what the game does, just much, much slower. Um, so it acts as a microcosm for everything you're going to do. Okay, now now that's the professional. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Which which Reddit game did you say that was? Uh, that was the first one, I think, Escape from Butcher Bay. I haven't actually played the second one. They, this they... is the one that I keep hearing is a surprisingly good um, 
licensed game that I need to have a look at at some point. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's quite good at that kind of stuff. It's 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 a very sort of nasty, brutal game. I mean, it's basically about shipping people in prison. Uh, but oh, it does it lovely. well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also another one. Fallout Three has one of the best tutorials ever. Fallout Three's tutorial was amazing. <laughs> yeah, because, because you, you go straight from Beth. Yeah, because you start off as a baby and then, like, you go through, like, uh, adolescence and uh, that lets you, like, create and edit your character and, like, teaches you how to fire guns and stuff. I thought it was really cool. Well, that's reminded me of the worst tutorial I can think of, which (laughs) is on a very similar theme, is Assassin's Creed 2. Where again, there you oh, get yeah. to play as a baby, oh, but God, it's oh, no. uh, uh, wiggle the right stick to wiggle your leg a bit. <laughs> oh man! Uh. See, uh, now I'm just going to sound completely unoriginal and say both Portal and Fallout Three, but not because of the reasons that have already previously been mentioned. Um, what I found quite refreshing about Portal's tutorial was how at the start of every level it told you how to complete it through the environment art. Oh yeah, the little sort of safety signs. Yeah. So like you could almost work out what you need to do before you actually had to do it. They were really good with that of making it like it would be very easy to do that and then to make all the portals trivial because it was really obvious what you're gonna do, but they were just like abstract enough with that art that you still had to figure some stuff out. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just going to say, it gives you just enough of a clue as to what tools you're going to need without telling you what you need to do with those tools, I guess. So it gives you some guidance and then still lets you explore other options. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, what were you going to say about Fallout, sorry? Um, the, bit, the tutorial in Fallout that I found quite interesting was how when you've got companion characters, and how they'd sort of guide you through different quests without you, without without you realizing that you were being told what to do. Mm. At least in my experience, anyway. Mm. Oh, that's there we go. Um, great. Um, on to the actual meat of the podcast. So, um, yeah. Usually, I just go for the simple expedient of asking people what they've been playing recently, and if there's anything in, uh, interesting about it. Uh, I'm going to start with Lucy. Okay, so it's actually kind of a funny story. I got Daisy yesterday, and uh, Daisy is a, a game that I've been wanting to play for a very long time. Mm. And uh, so I, I hop in the game with my boyfriend, and uh, just like running around because I'm really excited and like picking up like rotten peppers and eating them, and it's, it's fantastic. And then I like find an abandoned warehouse, and I, I run up to the second level, find like a, a knitted Ooh. beanie, put it on, feeling swagger. <laughs> and then like, I didn't realize that the physics in the game was so brutal and I was like okay well I don't want to go down the stairs and just jumped off broke both of my legs and ever since I've been crawling around Daisy waiting for someone to kill me like I'm even using the in-game mics just kill me already <laughs> literally having two broken legs is worse than being dead in Daisy it's so horrible Aww. so um, literally my, my first five minutes of the game are great but then it's been like an hour and a half of crawling around in a field so um I, I- I played Daisy once. Um, I got taken hostage, and I, my experience of that was I was like, I know I could kill myself and escape this, but I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> so I spent, I spent about two hours being held at gunpoint and led into some kind of prison somewhere, and people shouting at me in some language I didn't understand, and eventually I just signed out. <laughs> I think Daisy is an interesting insight in the human psyche. 
there's a lot of people, yeah, who, who react that way, I think, to like hostage taking situations in Daisy, because there's nothing that bad can happen to you, and you're probably, and you know, once they've got you in their sights, you're probably going to die anyway. So, I mean, I've seen, like, I remember uh, seeing a video at a point where these guys just, like, roll up in a bus and they just, like, lean out to this guy and they're like, yo, you want to come with us? And he's like, yeah, why not? <laughs> it's probably going to end badly, but it'll be an entertaining anecdote. And another thing, another thing with Daisy is that uh, I, I, you get to create your character, and it's not hugely customizable. But I went in and I'm like a, a an Asian lady, you know, black t-shirt, jeans. I was like, cool. I can only spawn as a white dude with a t-shirt and white boxes, and I have nothing else on. So I'm this guy wearing nothing with a pitchfork strapped to his back, <laughs> two broken legs, and a knitted beanie that his grandma made him, lying in the middle of a field. <laughs> Game uh. of the year. If that that game entirely lives and dies on who you happen to be playing with. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's one of those like if you're playing with the right people, that game can be amazing. Um, it, it takes a certain amount of being willing to play along with the sort of narratives people are making up as they go. Yeah, but it's really it's... tough to play with your friends though because, um, like I said, I was playing with my boyfriend and we spawned on opposite sides of the world and the world is like 200 square kilometers. It's not going to run into each other ever, I don't think, <laughs> especially with broken legs. Well, before you had broken legs, the the answer I always get told is head for the, the beach, head in opposite <laughs> directions around the coast, and you'll eventually find each other if no one murders you. Oh, okay. I'll keep that in mind when I finally get killed. <laughs> I like that anecdote, if nobody murders you. It's <laughs> always an if in Daisy, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not surprised you broke your leg. Pretty much everything I've heard about Daisy is don't go upstairs. Because it doesn't handle stairs well, and or edges, or dropping. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like, I'm fine, apart from having broken legs. Like, you know, I'm healthy, I'm energised, I'm, you know, cheerful. It's just got fractured legs through his shin bones, so... <laughs> You're just taking a little bit longer to go around, and your view's a little bit lower. <laughs> he just looks ridiculous, like, army crawling with, like, only white boxes and a beanie on. It's <laughs> the funniest thing. <laughs> I'm just imagining you trying to kill someone now. It's trying to be threatening and intimidating while on the floor in your underwear. <laughs> well, in The Walking Dead, there is that um, lady that's calling up behind Rick who has no legs. And she did look kind of intimidating. <sighs> that, was, that was a funny image. Uh. Yeah, I haven't played it much myself, unfortunately. It's... Uh... Although, um, yeah, I've been meaning to. I'm just kind of waiting because the first few tales I heard was people glitching through stairs and dying, <laughs> fused into a wall. I was like, okay, once they get that sorted out, then uh, I'll give it a crack. It is, it is pretty glitchy. <laughs> and the controls are just nightmarish as well. But it's it's fun enough that I can overlook that stuff. Like, that that never bothered me too much. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun as long as you don't break your legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so that's the first thing. I mean, like, it's it's quite a good uh, representation of, you know, it's quite a good early access game in that respect, in that everyone can see it's got problems, everyone can see it needs work, but the the, the core fun idea is already there. Um, it, it's one of those early access games where if it was only ever in the quality that it was released when it first came on early access, mm. I would still think it was worth the money. I would have still been able to get my money's worth out of it. Yeah, for me, that's that. I only really try and buy things that they're in that state. If it's something like um, yeah, Daisy or Kerbal Space Program or whatever, that you know, I, I know I can have fun with it right now because there is no guarantee. You never know what's mm. going to happen. Um, anyway, um, 
<laughs> well, I hope at some point. Well, I was going to say I hope you get better, but let's be honest, you're probably just going to die and then respawn. Actually, I was playing it before this podcast, and I was just about to run into a, or crawl into a zombie, so I'll, I'll probably go and do that when I'm finished. How? <laughs> um, what have you been playing lately? Um, I've been sort of doing in between quite a few games lately. I haven't really settled on one particular thing in a while. Like yesterday, for example, I played five minutes of Portal 2, five minutes of Far Cry 3, and 10 minutes of Dwarf Among Us. Because I've been so busy at work lately, ironically, as a game tester, so I spend all day playing games, that when I come home from work, it's literally the last thing I want to do for quite a while. I, I've still not got around to starting the, walk, uh, um, the, the Wolf Among Us. How is it? Um, if you're a fan of Fables, you'll love it. If you're not a fan of Fables but like The Walking Dead, you'll probably love it. It's the same mechanics, pretty much the same art style as well, but um, obviously entirely different universe, entirely different story. And I quite like the gritty, grimy crime that they go in for in it. Now, I heard you there saying like gritty and grimy as if those weren't words that could apply to The Walking Dead. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, wow. That if if, if, if it's those words against The Walking Dead, <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> I I don't um I'm not that far into The Walking Dead season one. I think I'm only on like episode two or three. Um, but I'm trying to play as quite a nice guy. Whereas um, I get the impression, probably because I've read the comics and fables, that um, Bigby Wolf is sort of like. And nasty, not nasty, but a really gritty, pessimistic character. So that's what I'm playing as. So when I compare it like that, then The Wolf Among Us is grimy and crime oriented, whereas The Walking Dead kind of isn't, to me anyway. So The Walking Dead puts people in like an extreme situation, but you know any bad stuff that happens in. Wolf Among Us is because people are crap. It's not because zombies. Um, yeah. So it's kind of yeah more downbeat in that respect. Um, I haven't played that much. But I yeah I really should because I really uh, a lot of people have talked about the film noir aesthetic and the way it's influenced by those. Um, and yeah, I, I studied film at university and wrote a lot about film noir, so I really should take a look at it. I'd quite like to see what happens. Um, well, what would happen if they ever did a Walking Dead fables crossover in the game universes. <laughs> Zombies suddenly turning up in Fable Town. <laughs> I actually the, the concept of the Telltale shared universe is actually kind of, <laughs> but because I mean they've got what else are they working on now? They're working on like a Borderlands prequel and, and game, game of Thrones. <laughs> Just yeah, all they all cross over. It's, it's a <laughs> I would buy that. <laughs> But to be fair, at the moment, I would buy anything that Telltale does because, like, I'm not a fan of The Walking Dead as a property generally. I was never really into the comics or the TV show. They turned the game into probably the most, like, one of my favorite things of the last couple of years. So I should probably just buy everything they make. <laughs> That's yeah. my thinking at the moment. I mean, well, I mean, that was a big departure because I remember when uh, Telltale started out making new event, a lot of these new adventure games and. 
they had the Monkey Island remakes, which were all right, and they had the Sam and Max games, and the and a bunch of not very good licensed properties. Like the Back to the Future series was terrible. Well, they did like the Jurassic Park one. I remember being really mediocre. Um, but no, they really hit a stride with Walking Dead. Um, that it's clearly and clearly the next, all the things they're doing now are, are trying to build off that. Yeah, they seem to have. There's something about the Walking Dead that seems to have shown them what they're doing with the rest of their properties, like. The the reception to um to the Wolf Among Us now that the first series is finished is pretty much that it's like oh it's amazing it's wonderful it's just as worthy of praise as the Walking Dead was so I'm very excited to have good adventure point and click things again. Hmm. Yeah, I I think um I do really like kind of possible as use their form opens up because it's not even I mean it. It's a they're point and click adventure games, so they don't put a huge emphasis on puzzles and lots of um, and, and lots of bloat like the '90s did. It's uh, it's very much just a stripped way of set, a stripped down way of saying, hey, this is a game all about having conversations. Um, it's yeah, it's almost like I remember years ago people were saying, man, why don't they just do a Mass Effect game without any of the shooting? And that's kind of what The Walking Dead is. Well, that's a really interesting view, actually. I've never heard it described that way, but. It is very much the, well, if it could have as much of an impact on where your story went, because I think that, like, more than Mass Effect, uh, The Walking Dead does does suffer from whatever you do, you will end up getting to the same point. Mm. I guess, like, at least up until its finale, Mass Effect had more of a semblance of choices to who survived, like, some of the impacts that would actually affect how the story went along. But, like, I see your general point. I do like this idea of, like the conversations of Mass Effect being the thing that's engaging, not the shooting necessarily. I didn't realise I wanted a Mass Effect game done by ten- by Telltale until right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. And now I really, really want this. Mm. That that should be the new petition. Just <laughs> Bioware, Telltale, make it happen. Just imagine that- if like Telltale had done the Citadel DLC. That would have been amazing. Oh wow! I still haven't played that yet, actually, but everyone tells me it is incredible. Oh, it's, it's fantastic and it's so moving. It's the best part of Mass Effect, just because it's like it's a bit weird that they released it after the game had already come out, but it is the it is the proper send off those characters deserved. I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's rather wonderful. Um, cool. Oh, I, yeah. Um, I thought it's going to be pretty interesting soon um, because it seems like after basically showing absolutely nothing at um, E3, it seems like Bioware's going to talk about a bunch of stuff at Gamescom. Cause Yay! We're... <laughs> and I'm going to be there and I'm so Yeah, excited. me too! Uh, I'll see you there. <laughs> I won't, unfortunately, but I'll be watching jealously from home. Probably, probably whilst making sarcastic jokes on Twitter, much like E3. Hooray! <laughs> Have any of you been following the weird ARG they're doing at the moment? Yeah. How's it going? Um, it's not gone terribly far so far since it started, but like it's becoming very clear that um, the the You Have Been Chosen video is connected to this sort of redacted um, story of ha- um, ha- Hannah um, that, that's been going around, and it's all going to culminate at Gamescom, seems to be oh. very obvious at this point. So. Yes. It's interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, I know uh, that uh, you were going to some actually legitimate uh, journalism detective work at one point. Because, um, uh, let me see if I remember this correctly. So, the uh, one of the P- 
pictures in the email that were sent uh, was named Shadow Realms Teaser. So that's so people are saying that's probably the name, which was apparently registered by EA shortly after, um, like the same day that uh, Fail Better put their mysterious uh, people who make Fallen Underdogs on a seaport their mysterious announcement saying we're working with Bioware on something. Well, it's not such a mysterious announcement when, like, the title of the announcement is Project Redacted, and the same day um, Bioware's email that went out had a big redacted, uh, uh, lots of redacted chunks in a piece of text. It's like, yeah, oh, so I wonder if they're connected somehow. So, yeah, it seems likely that, that I, mean, I, I guess Felbert might be running the, the ARG. I, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've only recently started looking at Felbert's stuff on the sea, and I really enjoyed their writing. One one thing I've heard suggested that I don't know what what I think about is because of the um the team that's working that's said they're working on this is if this is possibly a Bioware partnership indie game. Oh, which would be interesting if it happens. I don't think it's going to happen, but there are lots of people that seem to be leaning that way at the moment. Yeah, I mean no one really knows what it is as well. I mean, we know it's kind of spooky and involves dreams but we don't know how exactly how it's going to be implemented um, one of the websites in the ARG hints towards um, oh what was it um, some sort of like teleportation reality um, disfigurement type thing where um, one of the websites is um, a school prospectus and it goes through the courses that the school offers mm. oh yes and um, some of the lessons are to do with like bending reality, um, time travel, teleportation. Um, some of the classes are taught by um, professors that um, died mysteriously years and years ago and they're back as ghosts to teach these lessons. Hmm. It's all very Harry Potter-ish, <laughs> I'd say for well, now. I was getting a... I was getting quite an, a sort of X-Men uh, Professor Xavier's school kind of vibe from it. Like, there's definitely a lot of sort of suggestions that this is a school for people with some kind of special abilities. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, because that's not uh, of the, like, the trailer material released. There's not, no hints of that in there. So, so uh, which would be really interesting kind of... So, yeah, weird sort of surreal, spooky, nightmare X-Men. I'm okay with it. It sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, Laura, what have you been playing lately? I've been playing loads of really weird things on Itchio because I finally got an Itchio Press account. So <sighs> I've got one yet. Need to get um, on that too. <laughs> I I I applied for one ages ago and then never heard anything back and then got a very apologetic email of Oh, sorry, we meant to get around to that. Here you go. Um. So yeah, basically, I've just been playing through lots of like bizarre stuff on Itch.io I never would have otherwise played. Um, probably the most interesting thing that I played that was um, re- it, it was doing something really good and then never really did anything with it in the end was a game called Three Fourths Home. Um, and basically, at the top of the screen, you've got this car driving home in increasingly poor weather. Um, and sort of you're getting less and less visibility as you go and it's just sort of hold down one button to accelerate your car and then right down the bottom of the screen you've got a phone conversation going on between the person driving the car and their family at home basically being worried about the fact that you're out driving asking you to get home and then you sort of like start having conversations with 
members of the family while you're driving. Mm. And it seemed like it was setting up a mechanic where, like, it was difficult to keep an eye on both. And I assumed they were going to do something with this because the visibility was getting worse. And I thought, oh, something's going to happen if I don't pay enough attention to the car. This is going to turn into um, one of those adverts for don't 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 use your telephone and drive. Exactly. I thought this was going to be like I was going to hit someone in the dark weather, in the rain, in the wind. I was going to hit someone because I was paying too much attention to the phone. Unfortunately, they never did anything with that. Like, you can never pay attention to the car that's at the top of the screen that you're driving. And it does not make any difference. Which is a real shame because, like, everything they were setting up narratively seemed like they were setting up something bad's going to happen to you while you're driving this car because you're paying too much attention to this phone call. And, like, it was a good thing because... This phone call that you're having was really engaging and there were really good um, conversation options to choose from. And you got a se- I got a sense of this really interesting set of characters that um, they worked really well together, but they explored a lot of archetypes you don't often see explored together in that setting. Um, like to, to give a little bit of like basics, you, you're talking to uh, your family on the phone who there's your alcoholic father with um, with phantom limb syndrome, the mother who is excusing his alcoholism because it's like, well, it's just how he copes, and then their autistic child. It's a really interesting set of dynamics that go on and a really engaging story. But the whole time it keeps hinting that something's going to go wrong that never quite resolves in anything. And it's a shame because it was a really engaging story that I just kind of never... Like, I came away from it, unfortunately, feeling like they had missed a very strong opportunity with the mechanics, mm. which is not how you want to walk away from a good narrative-driven experience like that. So that was weird. So, yeah, it sounds like the driving itself is, well, just largely inconsequential. It It is. And it's weird because, like, the, you can't have this conversation on the phone without accelerating. Like, if you stop the car accelerating, the conversation fades away. Mm. So, like, everything about the mechanics seemed like there was going to be some kind of consequence to not pay att- paying attention to your driving. But ultimately, no, it just <laughs> didn't impact anything, which was disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the atmosphere of the midnight drive might colour the narrative to an extent. But, yeah, that does that does weirdly sound like it's all built around that a thing that never happened. Definitely. And this is, like, I really want to interview the developers at some point because... I'm really curious because it does feel like it feels like there was a, I, I don't want to ruin it because there is a really interesting narrative in there but the the resolution they have could have worked equally well if they had done something with the car but they seem to have needlessly skipped the obvious resolution to that story and just kind of jumped past it and done something that didn't feel as impressive which was disappointing um, I'm trying to have a look through what else did I play this week um, I play uh, sorry I have a list of games in here somewhere oh I played a really weird game uh, called The Lady mm. which was on Itch.io again and you play a kind of zombie-ish woman who's had both of her arms chopped off um, and you look terrified and you're looking at the world through this like broken pane of glass. And the whole point of it is that you can walk left and right by sort of leaning your body and you walk left and right. And you have to try and find weird doors 
while avoiding falling pieces of glass. And I don't quite understand what it was going for. I played for about 45 minutes and it was still just avoid the falling pieces of glass and go through the door. And I don't know if I was missing something fundamental about that, but I was just, I could not understand what the point of that was. Um, and then the last one that I was playing this week was I played a game called 4.09M, which was a tribute to the, the those that died in the Japanese tsunami in 2009. Was it 2009? 2011? Uh, I feel really bad. I, forgot. I think it was 2011. Okay, sorry, 2011. I, as soon as I said 2009, I thought, no, that's not right. Um, I actually I actually lived in uh, that area a year later. Um, yeah, it's... Basically, this is it's a game that tries to be a tribute to those that died in the tsunami, and it kind of starts off promisingly, and by the end, it's kind of thrown away what it was trying to do. Um, like basically, the whole gameplay is that you're on you're on this beach, and there's sort of the sound of sand crunching under your feet, and the waves crashing against the the shore, and all these sort of very calming, relaxing um, setting noises. And as you're walking around, you see these um, shadowy people on the beach. And the first one you walk up to, you get the name of, uh, presumably the name of this young boy that you've walked up to. And then the shadowy young boy disappears and it's he's replaced with a football that's washed up on the beach. Like That initial setup was like, oh, okay, I see what it's doing. It's trying to like individualize and be like, here is a specific human being that lost their life in that um, in that disaster. And weirdly from then, it kind of changes up what it does with all the subsequent ones where like you'll go to the next person and it no longer starts naming them. It's now just anonymous archetype of person that might have lived there that disappears to seeming and, and is replaced by seemingly random objects. And it seems to be relying very heavily on the... Um, the sort of sounds and visuals that are already sort of very calming to try and invoke an emotion that isn't necessarily being triggered in the player. It's very weird. And then at the end, it basically ends with a very westernized, um, cliched idea of the afterlife and how that applies to the people that died. And it kind of throws away its what it was doing in the beginning where it was trying to make these people individuals. And it, comes up with like here's a big crowd of people here's how many people there are that number of people died and again well, it seems to like it it's weird in that it starts off like it's very clearly at the beginning trying to make a point about the fact that like these were individuals these weren't just numbers of people these were very individual people who were who lost their lives and whose lives were affected but then by the end it is it goes back to what it seemed to be trying to avoid by being all about the numbers of people not the individuals so it sounds like an interesting game i'd actually like to play that because i lived in tohoku and uh it's it's obviously a matter that needs to be treated with a lot of respect because the loss of life was so huge yeah i mean when i lived there it was maybe like a, i think about a year after the tsunami and we were still getting like richter six earthquakes so it's definitely interesting. I would say it's worth playing if you have an interest in it. Um, you can tell that the person who made it clearly cared a lot about the subject matter and yeah. 
wanted to treat it with a lot of care and attention, but I feel like I feel like the problem is that between the start and end of the sort of narrative arc that is there, um, the idea of what he exactly wanted to say about those lost lives kind of got muddied along the way. So I have a question for you guys uh, with regards to this. Um, like you said at the end of the game, it, it turned into a sort of like westernized afterlife thing. You know, obviously a lot of people in Japan wouldn't have a western notion of the afterlife. Do you think that someone from a culture other than you know, the affected is able to make this sort of tribute game accurately? I I don't know. Um, I think that with something like that, you always have to... The, the answer is always getting um, consultants and getting people to sort of early on give feedback on how you're interpreting something someone else, I guess. Um, it's a similar situation to what we've just seen with Ubisoft and this goat sacrifice that two employees witnessed. Oh, that thing. <laughs> like, personally, I feel it's a good thing that they did that, and that's what people should be focusing on. Um, <laughs> do you explain for anyone that didn't know? Uh, yeah, I had no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Ubisoft were doing... Ubisoft or... oh. oh, yeah, no, carry on. Yeah. Uh, Ubisoft were doing research for Fire Emblem. One of the things they did as part of a research, uh, their research is they followed around a group in, was it Nepal or yeah. somewhere? And um, they took part with this um, native group in some kind of animal sacrifice. And there was, a, there was one of the gaming news sites was horrified that this had happened and how dare they do it. And like kind of the response is like, well, you know, don't don't judge that without actually talking to people who might understand the cultural impact of that better than possibly someone in England might. Mm. Possibly. It seems like if, obviously none of us know if there's going to be a sequence in the game that involves an animal sacrifice. There may not even be anything related to that. But if there is, and they hadn't witnessed it firsthand and treated it insensitively, then everybody would be um, ripping on them after release, saying, oh, well, you handled this completely. It was completely offensive. You shouldn't have done this. Whereas, you know, I think they should be praised for going to do their research firsthand and living among people who have experience with this and it's their culture. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, especially because they got a lot of deserved flack, I think, Far Cry 3 for being insensitive and painting other cultures with very broad strokes. Possibly. But yeah, but no, anyway... That's, that's a strange like, news story. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my point anyway, I guess, about 4.09M 4. is that, like, it, it, de- it definitely felt like its heart was in the right place, and I think it is definitely worth looking at if you're interested in that kind of... an exploration of that kind of topic, but bear in mind that it... It, the, the the very first interaction you have seems to suggest it wants to do one thing and it ends seemingly trying to do something else. Hmm. So, yeah, it's weird. Anyway, that's what I played this week. Well, yeah, and yeah, and I thought everything I played was going to be obscure. Um, <laughs> so it's what I've been playing a quite obscure old game from the uh, late 90s I ran into. I can't remember. I just sort of I went, just went sort of down a link rabbit hole and ended up at 
this quite interesting ending called King of Dragon's Pass. Um, or Dragon Pass. I can't remember if it's more than one dragon. Um, but it's kind of like an early... It reminds me a lot of Crusader Kings in the way it, it's a strategy game that's not really about conquering a load of people so much as it is about deals and alliances. And it's also got loads of personality to it. Um, you basically play this small clan of settlers in a place called Dragon Pass. Uh, and there's loads of other clans around. And, you know, you, you can beat them up and steal their cows. Um, it's not, you don't really, like, have huge battles over troops. You mostly just, like, a handful of people will die on either side and then you'll run off with their cows. Uh, there's a lot of cows theft in this game. <laughs> they're basically they're the basic currency is a cow. Um, no, literally, like it'll, it'll say um, you have like 200 cows and 100 cows worth of goods. That is the unit of currency. Um, but yeah, and the idea is that you fight uh, and or ally with other tri- other clans, and eventually you form several clans together into a tribe, and eventually you form several tribes together into a kingdom. Um, again, you can't really do that by conquering people. Not, not very much, anyway. You can't, you can't grow your territory that much. It's all about, you know, um, forging alliances with them. The really interesting thing about it is that you get this big, like, group of um, uh, nobles from your clan, uh, and they form your council. And you can just pick from, like, 20 different people, and there's, like, seven different seats. Um, and they all have, like, different abilities and... Like uh, you know, some of them will be very good at farming. Some of them will be very good at war. Uh, others will be very good at bargaining or whatever. And they worship different gods, and they have an amazing amount of personality. That's uh, what surprised me about it is they they all make these little comments like they're civilization advisors or whatever. But it's all like mitigated by partly by their stats. Like if if you're on the farming screen, the guy who knows farming will be able to tell you, um, look, we have enough men and cows to farm an additional twenty hides of land and the guy who knows absolutely nothing about that and you employ purely to beat people up and steal their cows will just be like oh more we'll farmland maybe um and then they also have their own personality quirks that have nothing to do with that like there's there's a, a guy on my ca- there's a guy on my council who really really hates elves and it's it like colors everything he says like he'll be You'll be on the diplomacy screen, and he'll be like, we need to find another tribe that hates the elves as much as we do. <laughs> and you'll be on the farming screen, and he'll be like, if we cut down the forest, if we cut, if we cut down more forest and make more farmland, then we'll reduce the number of elves in our land. Uh, and then, I don't know, you'll be on the defense screen, and you'll be like, we need stronger patrols to deal with the elves. And you're like, Again with the elves, man? I haven't even met one. What is with you? <laughs> What's then, this game called again? King of Dragon Pass. Uh, it was, it's, uh, it's on GOG, which is where I got it from, but I think there's also an iPad version there. King of Dragon. Dragon Pass. Oh, okay, cool. Thank you. Um, and yeah, it's it's really kind of strangely fascinating, the little quirks. I, I'm guessing if I like played it three, three or four times, then it would repeat itself more, and it wouldn't seem quite as spontaneous. Um, there'd, there'd always be a guy who really hated elves, but he, like... Yeah, as far as I know, this guy has got a little personality quirk, but he really dislikes elves, and it follows all the way through, because all the advice he gives me, and then it even ends up in a little sort of... Because there's a lot of um, sort of events which are very choose-your-own-adventure-y kind of things, where like um, uh, uh, where it's stuff like there's been a bad omen in your land, how do you react to it? Um, you send someone out exploring, and it's like, oh, I found uh, I found a triceratops skull buried in our land. Uh, what do you want to do with it? Um 
those all lead on to other things. And so there was one for the guy who hated elves. Because like, well, one day, just like a bunch of my soldiers came out of the forest with a bunch of elves captives. And I was like, what the hell? I didn't send you out there. And the guy who hates elves was like, ah, I finally got them. And <laughs> I, had to, I was forced to remove him from the council. Um, and said, no, I'm sorry. Back. No, I can't listen to you anymore. You, it's the only way I'm not going to end up at war with these people. <laughs> Oh wow! It's just yeah, it's, it's just a really amazing amount of personality. Um, and there's another guy who worships the trickster god, and so I'm pretty sure he's intentionally giving me bad advice because he thinks it's funny all the time. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Um, so yeah, uh, it's I, like I think to be honest, I think I, I get the feeling that, like I said, like if I played it a bunch of times, I start to see patterns. But it gives a tremendous illusion of there being. Because I picked up these seven people from a pool of twenty odd as well, and they grow up. The, the time passes, and they grow old and die, and get replaced by a new, younger generation as well. Um, so yeah, it, it really, really gives this illusion of there being an amazing, like, infinite amount of personalities in this game, even though there's probably only about like ten. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just fascinating. I've no, I've never heard anyone talk about it before. So it's just uh, weird to suddenly turn over an old game from fifteen years ago now. Late nineties spawned some great games, though. Mm. Yeah, I don't mean. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's it's not even really a, a kind of a genre anyone else went back to. Like um, all of the kind of strategy management games are very map based, and this just incredibly isn't. Like it's all like menu screens and choose your own adventures, and there is a map, but you never really need to look at. You know, they're never like moving troops around or anything like that. It's all, um, yeah, it's, it's all completely menu and personality based. But yeah, no, fascinating game. Um, and I, I think I, I would love to know if the Paradox, uh, uh, Paradox, the people who made Crusader Kings, have ever played it because that's the thing it reminds me most of. Um, I mean, only probably more, even more personality for your people, but maybe less so for the enemies. Right. Cool. Oh, I remembered one other game I've been playing that's actually really good and worth recommending. <laughs> um. I've been playing a game this week. I started playing a game that was recommended me a little while back called Counterfeit Monkey. That's a good name. Uh, yeah, it's it's a text-based exploration game in which you have the power to change the items in your inventory by taking letters out of the words in them. Oh, that that's clever. So, like the the early example is you've got a you've got a codex and you're trying to get through a locked door. So you can use your X remover to take the X out of the codex and turn it into a code and then use the code to get through the door. Mm. And it it starts off um, with very specific rules as to what you can and can't turn words into. Like initially you can't turn them into things that are alive or you can't turn them into um, like broad concepts and stuff like that. But by the end you could you can start having abstract concepts in your inventory. So you could have a lime and you could take the M out of it and turn it into a lie. Um, you just have a lie in your inventory. Wow, it's, this, it's like all it, those terrible old jokes almost actually turn them into a game. Exactly. It's a really interesting mechanic. Um, I'm not very far in, but the the narrative is really interesting. Um, yeah, and it's just based around this very unique mechanic of the items in your inventory, you can remove letters from them, but if you remove too many letters, you may ultimately make them unusable because you can't add letters back in. Mm. I feel like this would be very popular with reviewers because it is you know, entirely based around word games. 
<laughs> exactly. So I, I've not played much of it yet, but I'm really enjoying it and I wholeheartedly recommend it. I believe you can get it for free. Um, I believe it's free, but you've got to download a text adventure game engine or something. Cool. Well, I'm definitely going to check that one out. That sounds really fascinating. Right. Anyway, shall we answer a few questions? Why not? Um, the constantly very, I guess, uh, appropriately named uh, I'm Not a Gamer. Uh, As um, do you think gaming reporting on the web, etc., is getting better, worse, or just the same for female journalists? It's not a question for me, obviously. It's for, mm. uh, um, you've seen Laura, especially. I think I think it is getting better. Uh, it's it's not getting worse. I don't think it's obviously a lot more highlighted these days. Um, like the various hardships women go through in the gaming industry, not just journalists mm. as well. Um, so I think like a lot more awareness is being drawn to it and I think it is getting better. I mean, I've written for a few websites now and, uh, I mean, not every website has been a great experience, like, you know, because I'm a lady, but it's gotten better and better and the place I'm writing at now is just fantastic. I've never had a single problem. So I think it is on the rise. It, it's definitely improving. Like I can, I can actively compare, say the way that I, the, the responses I received when I wrote on Kotaku, uh, um, I came up on Kotaku a year ago compared to a piece that I wrote for Kotaku a month or so back. There is a very notable difference in the way that that community has responded to my existence on the site. So there is definitely progress being made, but equally the fact that there, it's very, um, the fact that lots of people are being very vocal about the fact progress is happening is also creating a certain group of people that don't like that progress and are being more active about resisting that progress. So it's, it's a weird shift in that like a lot of the people aren't so bothered by the female writers they're seeing now, but they're bothered by the fact that nobody else is bothered by them. I mean, obviously like there's still issues though. I mean, if you look at how they had to disable comments on the latest Polygon article talking about, um, you know, women's experiences in the gaming industry and, like, the attacks on, on Megan, who writes for Polygon, and, and yeah. you know, various things. So we still have a long way to go, but it's definitely improving. Definitely. And, like, that that particular article, I, I think that article uh, hit the nail on the head in many ways. Like, it's a really good read. Um, I wish I could remember what the title of it was now, so I could recommend people go read it. Um, no something like, enough. yeah, No Skin Thick Enough. That was the one. But, yeah, a lot of there were a lot of parts of that that really sort of um, I would agree with, but equally, like, it's definitely getting better, but there's a long way to go. Um, uh, Louise, Cube2D, says, uh, lots of people are angry that Face Punch Studios are working on a game that isn't Rust. Is there some other case of entitled gamers, or do they have a point? I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, Rust news. I missed on this. What's the what's the news? Well, basically, just uh, the people who make Rust announced that they were working on a prototype for a new game, and apparently they got a lot of people very angry. They're like, "Finish Rust first. Is is that the problem then? That Rust is in a sort of early access type? Yeah, it's it's early setting, access. and it's yeah. why have you moved on to something else before this is finished? Yeah, mm. well, that's the sentiment. I mean, their explanation, which Louis uh, thinks to, and I'll link to as well in the show notes, is. Basically, that you know, we're that they're a medium-sized studio and they can do two things at once. Um, but uh, it seems I, some of their audience feel that like they should be absolutely committed to one thing and then another and then another. 
I think they're entirely entitled to, if they've got a large enough studio, mm. like rather than burn out on having an entire studio working on what's essentially patches and balance fixes for a game, I guess. Like, I think that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to move on and do something else on the side. Or, well, do something else as their focus and, I guess, shift um, fixes on Rust to being a side thing they do. Also, it is just a prototype. I mean, they're not going into like full production on it yet, are they? No, I don't think so. So I don't think then anyone has anything to worry about because, I mean, yeah. indie studios prototype millions of games all the time that they never like follow up on or you know go into full development straight away. Yeah. I, I, I guess if, if they're going to complain about that, they've got to t- complain every time an indie developer takes part in a game jam. Yeah. Oh, goodness, you did a prototype. No. Well, I mean, I remember the early days of Minecraft being developed as like one of the first big open access, uh, early access games. It wasn't called it then, but you know, they sold the beta, and people would literally like hassle Notch when he talked about going on holiday or going out for a drink because he should be working on Minecraft. Yeah, it's, I think it's especially tough for indie developers because um, we're so close to our audience um, and we're so connected, like. We're not usually entities like that are behind a company. We're we're people that you can talk to on Twitter, and it's it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, the larger companies will have that kind of wall between. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad things said about the influence of PRs, but I think part of their job is sometimes that you do want a wall between you and your audience, so that maybe they don't know how many people are working on X and how many people are working on Y, so if they don't send you a angry emails about it. Um, yeah, no, I I think it's more a case of a lot of, uh, of people just not knowing enough about game development um, and how it works, because from everything, I mean, the idea of working linearly on you, you, work, you do all your work on one thing and then you start again from, like, page one on the next thing, that's not really how anyone works. Um, especially if you're, especially if you're a large company, because or a large or medium-sized company, because you might have people who are like, uh, you might have people who are like concept artists who don't really have anything to do once you've uh, after a, beyond a certain point, um, and so it makes more sense in a for a, a, to succeed as a business for you know developers to keep rolling onwards with these things and have some overlap, but the people buying games don't necessarily get that. I, I would yeah. definitely agree. Like my my first year I've spent um, developing games, like I had my one big project that I spent like the last year working on. But like along that process, like every so often I would stop and do something small. And like I broke up my development process by releasing three very small, like um, ten to fifteen minute little RPG maker projects. And it was just that sort of thing of sometimes if you're only working on one big thing. It's nice to just get something small out of the way and to do something else for a little while to just refresh yourself on, like, so that you're not still entrenched in that one thing you've spent the last year I pushing think, away at. I, I think guess. the fact that they're, that they're working on prototypes is actually the sign of a healthy indie studio because um, having a project that you want to work on and that's upcoming will actually encourage you to, to finish the one that you're doing and like it'll stop feature creep and everything. So I think it's, it's a good thing that they're working on something else. Exactly. It stops. It stops that whole thing of let's Never just spend a little more time. Ever. Yeah, and it's not <laughs> quite good enough yet to show, and that's a very healthy thing, actually. That's, yeah. that's a big danger when you're creating anything uh, is to just net. It's to never show anyone for the longest time and, and be completely. Inst- and you stop being able to see it properly. 
you know, you, you need to stop and do something else occasionally, or you need to step back, or you need to show it to someone else because otherwise, you you just live inside a bubble. Richard Duck asks, um, since the Wii U is doing better sales-wise, will it become the indie console of choice? Um, um I've had mixed feelings about this because um, the Wii yeah. U is really accessible because. Obviously, they've got Wii U for the Unity um, engine now, but the SDK is is still quite expensive for for mm. like starting out indie developers. Like the the price is very hush hush, but I think it's yeah. around two thousand US dollars. Okay, and I like, I oh, I've heard a lot I, higher than that. I yeah, I even heard I'm a lot higher. To, but I I know what the price is. I'm not allowed to say it because I'm a licensed Wii U developer, but. You're a little low on your ballpark. Yeah, because I, I heard an <sighs> announcement that it was going to be two K. But yeah, and uh, it's really expensive. I I registered. There is no way I can afford a a development kit, not in my wildest dreams. Yeah, I I can imagine that would be the case. I mean, I applied for an SDK and I haven't heard back yet, but I do hear stories that it's really expensive. And I think that's actually a very um, huge put off for indie devs because we're not made of money. Everyone knows that. Um, yeah, I mean, and like lots of platforms are doing a really good job of encouraging um, other developers as well. I mean, I can kind of see what the Wii U would appeal, partly because like almost every indie dev I know has some kind of fond history with Nintendo. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know really what the have. Uh, I don't, I don't know if there ever will be an indie console of choice, really. Well, I think the indie console of choice. Oh, at yeah. least for the next like number of years, is going to be Sony platforms. Whether that's, Aww. I, I, the thing. Like, I, I, I agree with you that I would love to see the Wii U be that. And I know that like the Shovel Knight developers, for example, are a great example of developers who have such a fond history with Nintendo that they decided, regardless of anything else, console-wise, they wanted to be on on Nintendo systems first. The problem is just like from all the conversations I've had with people behind the scenes and the stuff that I've done from trying to do my own game development things. Um, Sony are by far the most accessible to get your mm. um, your games onto their console. They are the most happy to, um, to help out with getting your games on there. And basically there's just a lot less barriers and there's a much better... Um, the current conversation around it, everyone just seems to be a lot more positive about developing for Sony. And uh, also, so. I mean, you've, you, yeah, if you get your game onto a Sony console, you'll probably be on both Vita and um, PlayStation, whereas Nintendo seem to be a lot more reticent to put things on 3DS uh, in terms of indie games. Um, I'm just, I guess I'm just really sad because I really love the the mechanics of the Wii U console and I really wanted to develop for it because it's just so cool and I love like Nintendo's family-friendly sort of, you know, multiplayer ethic. And uh, I, I really was excited when they were saying they were going to be indie-centric and but but the thing is, they're saying that and then also pushing us away with one hand because there's no way anyone yeah. can afford the SDK. To be honest, this 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 is. I was just gonna say this is the problem I have where a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. Um, you are the reason I wanted to put that on Wii U as the first console it went on. That is where I would like to see it. Um, as it stands, I've got it running on a Vita. I don't have it running on a Wii U because I can't afford the tech to do that. <laughs> 
Which See, is I'd love, really to, disappointing. I'd love to develop for the Vita, but I also can't afford a Vita, so I mean, that's why I'm sticking to Android and, and well, PC for now. At, at least with a Vita, you can you can test your builds on a retail Vita. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, I that agree is, that, that is Sony so is way more better. accessible. Um, if you can avoid having an SDK, obviously that's that's the, the best way to do it, but just I'm um, just sad that the Wii U has such a huge barrier to it. It's a weird thing, actually, because it does actually make a lot of sense for Nintendo to bring a lot of indie developers on because when when you, you when they announce some strange bit of hardware for you know for large developers that becomes kind of an extra hassle that oh our multi-platform game has now got to incorporate this weird controller or motion or whatever. But when you've got people, oh, but you know the uh, the way that a lot of indie developers react uh, uh, react to things, react to challenges and arbitrary restrictions, um, means that they you know they would almost see it as um, a great thing to experiment with. They'd probably be more welcoming to the way Nintendo designs consoles. But unfortunately, Nintendo is quite a traditional company in a lot of ways. And that's exactly why I wanted to develop for the Wii U, because like, as soon as I saw the, the console and um, the controller, I had so many ideas of games I wanted to make. I was like, yes, I want to be a Wii U developer. Then like, you hear how much the SDK costs, and you're like, no, maybe not but now. The <laughs> annoying thing is I'm not... There are positives to developing for the Wii U, but oh, yeah, I'm definitely. not allowed to talk about any of them because I <laughs> now being a developer. NDAs. Like I am now under NDAs where like I have seen all the stuff. I'm like, hey, if you let me talk about this as a journalist, you would have so many more people wanting to develop for your console. Why am I not allowed to talk about this? Um, yeah, uh. it's, it's, it's the blessing and the curse of Nintendo being this very old-fashioned company. Really, it means that they're they're not as you know hit-driven or De- or desperate for profit, I mean, uh, or a desperate profit and vulnerable to loss, as someone like Sony or Microsoft. But it also means that they're kind of slow to react to the whole rise of indie games. They're still, it's still kind of like 2008 in Nintendo world. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just sad because I really love sad. Nintendo. Mm. I know Nintendo are the <laughs> one like I, I want to develop for Nintendo hardware, but it's difficult. It, it is. It is. That's why it's sad. <laughs> I know. I've, I've I've heard similar things elsewhere. I remember. Um, I remember one of them basically telling me that um, it was uh, well, it was Rami from Blambeer who basically said he really wanted to put his games on 3DS, but they would only give him a chance to put them on uh, Wii U. Um, mm. Which is a bit of a shame because it feels again, it feels like in small indie games like that on handhelds would be a really good fit, but. Yeah, I just think about the possibilities of indies having like access to that sort of tech, and I just wonder why, you know, people don't want to let them. They do I guess want it, it to. Is a, but... It is a bit of a risk, mm. I guess. It's like especially with how many indies are trying to implement the second screen mm. mechanics, um, which would obviously fit the Wii U perfectly. Yeah, no, I've seen people but, doing it with uh, uh-huh. a PC and an Android tablet because it's easy. yeah, <laughs> it's uh. It's, it's, uh, well, it's cheaper anyway. Hi everyone. At this point, unfortunately, our recording uh, crashed and cut out. Um, we pretty much finished anyway. We only had like one more question to answer. Uh, but unfortunately, it means there isn't a proper goodbye um, from uh, Lucy, Hannah, and Laura. So I'm just going to say goodbye by myself. But thanks to all of them for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Goodbye!